And today, we finally finish the Beatitudes, uh, which I hope is bittersweet to you. Uh, but then next week will be, uh, next week we have a mission uh, report. And then the following week, we'll start the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm excited about that. But right now, let's go before our Lord in prayer. Gracious Almighty Heavenly Father, you indeed are wonderful. Meet with us here. Meet with us now because you and you alone are worthy of all our praise. And Jesus, over the last 2,000 years, many, many men, women, and children have suffered for you and have been blessed, have received the favor of God because their courage, their hope in you, their trust in your promises did not fail when tested. And Holy Spirit, we recognize that it is only by your power, it is only by you working in us and through us, which is the meaning of grace that enables us to live this way. God, I pray that you would help us to hear a message tonight that Lord, I hope we don't have to live, but Lord, should we, I pray that we would be martyrs. We would be witnesses for the great grace and promise and hope in Christ that you have given us. Bless us tonight as we finish the Beatitudes and help us to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever been punched in the face? Unfortunately, I have. I... Grew up moving many times, and whether you know it or not, when you move to a new elementary school, you have to prove where you line up in the pecking order. So, inevitably, you get in fights in order to make the spot where you belong. Now, of course, it didn't help that I was a smart aleck and a general pain in the rear end, but I was persecuted quite a bit. I went to 10 elementary schools. But I was not persecuted for righteousness' sake. <laughs> that is certain. And unfortunately for me as a little brat, I mean young man, only persecution for righteousness' sake is what is rewarded. Persecution for stupidity, unfortunately, was not. But in light of that, you and I can rejoice when we suffer for Jesus because your reward is intimacy with him. I want to read for us our three verses tonight we'll be going through in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 10. Blessed, recipient of divine favor, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here, in concluding his Beatitudes, in this list of what it looks like to be the recipient of divine favor, those who are blessed, he warns of natural consequences. 
natural consequences of living a godly life in an ungodly world. And that consequence is persecution. Fortunately, Jesus also gives us two magnificent promises so that if we indeed do have to face this persecution, we will be able to go through it rejoicing because of these promises. In fact, what you and I need to know before we get started tonight is that the two primary promises that we will find in this text are based, are founded upon, are undergirded as in fact all promises of God for us in Christ. They are grounded on Christ's death and his resurrection. And therefore, because it is a done deal, a fact of history, you and I can depend on these promises just as if they are in our hands, just as if they are already here. The first promise we're going to see tonight is that we are given the Son's righteousness. We are given the righteousness of Christ. We are declared righteous. We are guaranteed a place in heaven, which, by the way, is no small thing. Amen? And the second promise that we're going to find here is what Jesus calls the Father's reward. Jesus calls this reward great. That is mind-blowing. That is something altogether on a higher plane than we can reach. Because those who are called to suffer for Christ ought to celebrate their fortune, their blessing, because their righteousness, the righteousness that they are given, and their reward, again, that which is given, is secured, is put in concrete by Christ's death and resurrection. You and I can rejoice when we suffer because our reward is intimacy, is tight fellowship, is personal tightness, inness with Jesus. So I want to look at these two promises before we go through our passage. The righteousness that we are given is this right relationship that is credited to, to, to our account. It is given to us, and it's because God the Father poured out his wrath on God the Son. I know you're all familiar with 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. All of my sin was placed on him so that you and I, we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took my sin. He gave me his righteousness. This verse tells us that God has redeemed us. He has removed us from us the penalty of sin and that he has justified us. He has credited to us Christ's righteousness. This is the definition of of the atonement, if you've heard that word before, and it is exactly what is needed for our one-way ticket to heaven. Now, our reward, I don't want to really go into this, but I want us to look at what our reward is very briefly. Our reward is to know Christ better and better in this life, and then 
throughout all eternity. Where do I get that? John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, whatever else, and there is a whatever else, whatever else there is to our rewards, it will be based upon a personal, deep, in fact, intimate knowledge of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And I don't, I can't go much beyond that because the Bible hints at several things, but it doesn't give us a very clear understanding of what these rewards are. But we know that whatever else these rewards are, they will be founded on, they will be built upon an intimate knowledge of God. But even more important, again, before we get to our verses, even more important than that, we need to ask and answer a huge question. In what way am I, you and I, able to share this eternal life? How do we, if if eternal life is knowing God, if eternal life is being blessed with this intimacy with God, then there has to be a way for you and I to help others to know the Son. There has to be a method for you and I to enable others to take part in this. Because we are, you and I, we are God's means. We are his tools for bringing about this eternal life on the planet. Fortunately, Paul gives us a clue. Paul says in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sakes, and in my flesh I am, now catch this, this is an important phrase, filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now what you need to know is that there is absolutely nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions with regards to payment for your sins and mine. Jesus died on the cross, and he said in John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. By the way, that is clear and conclusive proof that Jesus didn't have to go into hell. The only hell, quote unquote, he experienced were those three hours of darkness on the cross. But there is, is something lacking. Paul tells us right here what then Paul is lacking. What is lacking is that there are many people out in the world who have never seen Christ's afflictions. They have never seen that Christ died for their sins and he rose from the dead so that you and I need never fear death again. It is because Christ's affliction aren't known as far as they need to be known that you and I need to suffer. You and I must suffer persecution so that others may know Christ and have eternal life. That is why you and I can rejoice when we suffer for Jesus because our reward will be intimacy with him because we have been his tool in bringing people to him. Okay, with that introduction, let's look at our verses <coughs> one at a time and see how they apply to our lives today. First of all, Matthew 5.10, don't expect reward 
This is your first blank if you're following in your notes. Don't expect reward for unrighteous suffering. You know, like me being a smart aleck when I was moving from school to school. Matthew says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus specifically guarantees, he promises reward for being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, there are lots of reasons to be persecuted. There are a ton of them. Being a smart act is only one. And I want to tell you these next three points about how not to suffer. I've stolen freely from Martin Lloyd-Jones. So if you don't like him, blame him. The first point that he wants to make, I translated in my own language, don't suffer because you're an idiot. Yeah. I, actually, I think it is funny. I couldn't think of a better way of putting this one. Fortunately, Peter explains to us how not to be an idiot. He says in 2.19, he says, For this is a gracious thing then when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In other words, having these persecutions. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, you sin and you take one on the chin for sinning. Oh, well, kind of in our language, we would say serves you right, right? But he says it even more clearly in 4, 15, 16. He says, but let none of you suffer as an idiot, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What name? In the name of Christ. So what he's saying here, don't be unrighteous, but be righteous. And if you suffer for being righteous, for doing the right thing, okay then. There's nothing you could do about that, but glorify God. And I take it that if you can put these two passages together, and they're in your notes if you want to go back there and look at them, and you can look at that and say, yeah, this is a good description of why I am suffering in this case, you can pretty much say, yes, okay, I am guaranteed this reward that Christ is saying. So don't suffer because you're an idiot, and then don't suffer because you are religious. Now, many, both religious people and not religious people, equate being, quote, religious with being weird. Don't. I think this is part of the point of Ecclesiastes 7.16. He says, do not be overly righteous. I, I used to scratch my head at that. What do you mean, don't be overly righteous? How can you be overly righteous? Well, I think this is Solomon's way of saying, don't be weird. Don't, you know, pretend your righteousness is the excuse you need to do something that nobody else is doing just for the sake of being weird. You are a human being, and much of what around you is good when you view it properly. Uh, in fact, as a side note, I was just talking to my boys about this earlier this week, and we were talking about Harry Potter. And because my boys are all into Harry Potter right now. And we, we talked about the fact, well, what do you do with the fact that there's witches and warlocks and, you know, um, all kinds of scary stuff in there? And I said, listen, witches and warlocks and all these things are like fire. 
And fire is plenty dangerous. Fire outside of where it ought to be will burn you. In fact, it might burn your whole house down. But if you handle it carefully, even things that are dangerous can be helpful. Now, I don't want to get in a debate about Harry Potter right now. If you want to talk about that, we can later. But don't just be weird for weird's sake, thinking that that's what makes you a Christian. So thirdly, don't suffer because you have a quote-unquote cause. And this is something that Pastor Benji and I talk about quite a bit, and we've both there and here have preached about this topic. You and I cannot allow our political views to cause us to suffer and call it suffering as a Christian. We cannot allow our political thoughts to transplant the place of the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus ought to have in our heart. In other words, keep the main thing the main thing. Paul emphasizes this reality in Philippians 3.20. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a second side to this coin. The other side of this coin is that although our primary citizenship is in heaven, it certainly does not mean that we should not exercise our responsibilities as citizens on earth. You should exercise your responsibilities as citizens on earth. And my primary passage for that is Jeremiah 29.7, where he says, Seek the welfare of the city. Do what you ought to do as a citizen of whatever country that you're from. Here's the point. The point is that we must value our citizenship in heaven more than our citizenship in the U.S. I'm assuming most of us are U.S. citizens. You should care about politics and perhaps even sacrifice and perhaps even suffer for that sacrifice you make as a citizen of your country. But don't make the mistake of equating your citizenship in the U.S. with your citizenship in heaven and make sure that what you are sacrificing for you can do and you can suffer for because you are a Christian. Because that is your primary citizenship. Don't suffer for voting for Proposition 8 and think that that earns you a spot in heaven because it doesn't. Now, I happen to have voted for Prop 8 as well. But that, those two things are not the same. The second point that we get, don't suffer for unrighteous actions is that we need to rest in God's favor when we do suffer for the right reasons. And I, I wanted to make that point shorter, but I never could find it. This, each word here is important. Rest, recognize that God has done this for me. And secondly, in God's favor, because he is the one who is pouring out his blessing on me, when I do suffer... For the right reasons. I take this from Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, we have the Beatitudes and up to verse 10, Jesus keeps talking in the third person. He says, blessed is he who? Blessed is 
this person. Blessed is, are, are those who. And now in verse 11, he switches to the second person. Blessed are you when such and such. Now, I think this switch in his grammar is very important. Because he concludes his exposition on the Christian life, what it looks like to be one who is built upon the grace of God, the blessing that he pours out on those who willingly trust him. And he gives, in this, blessed are you, he gives three specific reasons why we should be willing to suffer. And this is his conclusion. I take the first one from Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says, we must suffer because God works righteousness in us. It is him who puts this righteousness in us that causes us to suffer. In fact, I get this also from 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus... Everybody who wishes to be the kind of person who depends upon the grace of God will suffer, will be persecuted. That stings a little bit, doesn't it? Because I assume your first reaction is the same reaction as every two-year-old. That's not fair, right? And it's not. It's not fair. But Paul tells us it's going to happen. So what? So expect it. Expect that it's going to happen. Nothing strange is happening to you when you suffer because you want to be like Jesus. What you have instead of fairness is a promise. And that promise is heaven And that promise is whatever else it is that you get more than heaven, I have no idea, but it's that. Amen? And that is what's going to be worth it. In verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and do all these things on my account. So suffer not only because God works righteousness in you, but suffer because you are like Christ and you want even more to be like Christ. John 15, 20, Jesus says, Remember what I said to you. If they persecute me, If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. This is a simple fact. There has been only one perfect man, and they crucified him. How much more are you and I, who are not perfect, going to face persecution and suffering if we try to be like our master? Just think about it. You know those dreams you think, oh God, if I could only be more like you, if I could only get rid of this sin, if I could only get rid of that flavor of iniquity, which I'm always running to, I would be perfect and everybody would love me. Guess what? You're wrong on both counts. (laughs) You're still not perfect and not everybody's going to love you. And the third thing that we see is that we need to suffer because we belong to the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is 
going to be a slightly complicated point. You're going to have to put your listening ears on for this. Suffer because you belong to the kingdom of heaven. Second Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5 says this. says, therefore, we ourselves, Paul is talking about him and his buddies who are going around the Mediterranean spreading Christ. We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and the afflictions that you're doing. Thessalonica was an interesting town. Paul got there, and all of a sudden, everybody was chucking stones at him and being a real pain in the rear end. And it sounds like, I might be corrected, some of these guys might know better, and I, I think he was only there for a couple of weeks. He wasn't there very long. And all of a sudden, What's happening? The Holy Spirit is getting involved in these guys' life, and he's, they're making a difference. They're being Christians. And Paul says, hey, this is awesome. And he says, all this persecution that you guys are going through, this persecution is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered, catch this, worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it, discipleship, is therefore not at all surprising, or it is not, it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and as a token of his grace, spoken by a man who went to death because of him. Now, you've heard me say this before. One of the reasons, and I'm certainly not saying the only reason, but one of the reasons why we experience pain in this world is because we need to be reminded on a daily basis that this is not our home. We need to be reminded that this is not our reward. Whenever I'm throwing a pity party for myself... And I'm thinking, oh, woe is me and how bad it is and nobody loves me and all this. I need to be reminded that this is not where I'm going to get my reward. This is not where all my bennies come. I'm waiting for heaven for that. Our home is far away and far better than this one. And and I have to rabbit trail because I can't miss this. I want you to notice how both Paul and Jesus equate or at least closely correlate the kingdom of heaven and inheriting the kingdom of heaven and suffering. Now, I need to start this by reminding us what the kingdom of God is. Remember that Matthew summarized both the entire preaching ministry of both John the baptizer and Jesus by saying this. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He summarized all of the preaching of John the baptizer and Jesus by that one sentence. And if you remember, it's been several months now, but I put that into modern English by saying, turn away. From your sin and turn to God. For the reign of God is available to everyone everywhere. The power of God is as close as your fingertips. Is how Dallas Willard put it. Now this kingdom of God, which I take as exactly the same thing. Kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. I believe those are equated. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done gets done. And if you are living in such a way that 
where God, what God wants done gets done, there's going to be a lot of people who don't like that because they, the last thing they want is God's will to be done in their lives. Do you know anybody like that? And when these people see you attempting to live out and by the power of the Holy Spirit, by grace, living out what, what God wants done getting done, it'll be kind of like going to a Dodger game with the Giants jersey on. You're going to get beat up. In fact, so tied together is both blessing and persecution in the kingdom of God that we have, in the very few short verses we have of the Beatitudes, Jesus mentions it not once, but twice. He says in verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Why are they blessed? Why are they recipients of God's favor? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 10, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why are we blessed? Why do we receive God's favor when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake? Because ours is the kingdom of heaven. So, we have a huge question. We have a major problem here. If the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is where what God wants done gets done, if that's a true statement, then we have to ask and answer the question, how can I participate with God and therefore experience his favor? How do I get in on this deal, so to speak? And Jesus' answer and Paul's answer in 1 Thessalonians is in part, a part of their answer is rejoice in persecution. Rejoice when bad things happen to you because you love Jesus. You and I ought to celebrate the persecution of the, that the world pours on you instead of Christ because Christ isn't there for them to pour their wrath on. So you are the closest person who can take it. And the reason why we should celebrate is because he has already won both our righteousness, remember, his declaring us to have a right relationship with him, and our reward. So therefore, rejoice when you suffer for Jesus. Rejoice when bad things happen to you because the world can't get at Jesus, so they get at you. Because your reward is the fact that you are so tightly close with him because of his suffering that you get Jesus. That you get Jesus. So let's get back on the main trail that we were just on by ask, asking the question, why should we rejoice when we are persecuted for righteousness, for Christ's name? And that is our third point if you're following in your notes. Rejoice. Because Christ is your reward. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Now again, our passage gives us three reasons why you and I can rejoice. And your points are rejoice, first of all, in salvation that is already won. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. The key phrase being there, in heaven. You are promised here a place in the place 
where all of God's blessings are going to flow. Remember, we are not at home here. This is not our home. This isn't where we get all of our benefits. And when we look at this promise, when we look at the fact that our reward is great in heaven, we are having gratitude for what is to come. We are, we are grateful that this is going to happen. Paul calls this the blessed hope. Specifically, that's Jesus coming back to get us. Not to, right? But it is our blessed hope. It is our hope, the one that we long for. Your place is secure in heaven. It is the most the most important thing that could happen to you has happened to you. And no matter what bad might happen to you, you can be sure that what is coming far outweighs this momentary and light affliction that we experience on earth. In fact, this gratitude can start changing how you and I drive on the freeway. This gratitude can start changing how you and I experience impatience with doctors. This gratitude can change how you and I have grumpiness at things that we can't control. And I'm speaking about me here more than anybody. You and I can rejoice when we suffer for Jesus because our reward is intimacy with him. The second thing we can rejoice about is we can rejoice in rewards that are already won. Again, verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. Now this is when a little bit of sanctified imagination, it's a phrase that Michelle Winger and I share share on this one. This is when our sanctified imagination can really benefit us. Just think for a moment. Jesus says that we got this reward coming. Again, we really don't know much about what it is. We just know that it's built on intimacy with Jesus. And then we think about heaven and everything we've heard about heaven. And we think, man, this is great. And Jesus puts it up another notch. As if what we couldn't reach wasn't high enough. He's even getting it higher than that. It's great in heaven. And this is gratitude that is so secure that it is as if it is already done in the past, as if we are already holding on to it. I said a moment ago, our reward is intimacy with Jesus. And this promise says that that reward is great. Whatever it is that you value, whatever it is that you love, whatever it is that you love to do or to hold or to be somewhere, Imagine all of that joy and then being bumped up to a thousand times. And that is the beginning of what it will be to have this kind of intimacy with Jesus. You having this kind of suffering is identifying with Jesus. It puts you in league with him, so to speak. It demonstrates this suffering for Christ's sake means It demonstrates that you are on his team. And my friends, God will not leave his teammates in the lurch. Rejoice when you suffer for Jesus, for your reward is intimacy with him. And lastly, out of verse 12, rejoice, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. My friends, you and I can rejoice because there have been 
many, thousands, perhaps millions of people who have gone before us suffering for Jesus far more than we have ever done it. And they are now experiencing Christ's reward. In fact, the author of Hebrews makes this clear in chapter 11. For people who speak thus, these, these were people who were valuing, identifying with Christ more than rewards of this world. People who talk like this make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. My friends, you and I can joyfully live from remembering Christ's work through your righteous suffering because you know that grace goes before you and grace follows after you. And I want to tell you about one particular man. This was a man who in the early 20th century hated Jesus and he hated the church. And then right before Hitler came to power, he became a Christian. He was a Jew, and so he hated Christians, and he was a quote-unquote scientific Jew, so he hated everything that he thought that had to do with Christianity. But then he met this weird old man who lived in this small village, and this strange person won him by love. And here is this young man who had rejected everything that had gone before him and rejected, in fact, the old man who it was who eventually won him to Christ. And he became a Christian. And then the Nazis came, and guess what? Not only was he a Christian, but he was a Jew. So who is going to face double persecution in his homeland? Finally gets through uh, Nazism, and who is in town next? The communists. And here's what happens. The communists convened a congress of all the Christian bodies in our parliament building. There were about 4,000 priests, pastors, and ministers of all denominations. And these men of God chose Joseph Stalin as honorary president of this congress. At the same time, he was president of the world movement of the godless. <laughs> I don't know if, that, if that's him being sarcastic or true. I didn't look it up. But... And a mass murder of Christians. One after another, bishops and pastors arose and declared that communism and Christianity are fundamentally the same and could coexist. One minister after another said words of praise towards communism and assured the new government of their loyalty of the church. Here they are. They're sitting with 4,000 people in this room. Here is a brand new Christian and who is a pastor not because he went to some great seminary, but because he loved Jesus and had someone teach him from God's word. And listen to this courage. My wife and I were present at this Congress. Sabina told me, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. I said to her, if I do so, you lose your husband. She replied, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. Thus began decades 
of suffering. In and out of prison, here is a man who only had one son, but whose son was denied all of the advancement that we would want for our children and finally escaped and was, came to Germany and then ultimately the United States. And here's a man whose wife told him, wipe the shame off Jesus' face. They are spitting on him. My friends, Richard Wormbrand went home to be with Jesus and his reward about 13 years ago. But one thing that we know from his life is that he was able to joyfully accept the plundering of his goods, just as the author of Hebrews says, because of the reward that was coming. I dearly hope that what Richard Vormbrand and Sabina suffered during those times will not be the experience of any of us here. But pray, pray that you, pray that your children, your grandchildren, will be able to stand up because they understand and believe and trust the promises of God. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, we do indeed come before you because we need your blessing if we are to experience suffering and rejoice in the midst of it. Give us, Lord, the grace we need to do so for our good, for your glory, and for the growth of of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.